Hey, welcome to week number two of our series called That's What He Said. And uh, real quickly, we're looking at words from Jesus that are sometimes difficult to apply to our lives. They're hard to swallow. They're difficult to put into practice. And um, some of us understand that sometimes people say things to us that um, are hard to, to grasp. When I was younger, I can remember dreaming about a day when I would be a boss because I wanted to fire someone. I thought as a kid that would be just so cool like to walk into somewhere and just say, um, you know, thanks for your time with us. Unfortunately, it is ending right now. So enjoy the rest of your life. Like as a kid, I don't know, I just, I was a warped kid maybe. But I remember just thinking like that would be great to be able to say that. But then as I got older, uh, there were moments in my family uh, and, and people close to me who received that conversation where they were let go from a job for various reasons and that the weight of that conversation became something that I was like I hope I never have to give that you know maybe you're here today and maybe you've had to let someone go maybe you're in a position where that happened uh, but maybe you were told that that had to happen and so sometimes you kind of find comfort in saying listen I know this is really difficult to hear but I'm just a messenger, so please don't shoot me. Like, this is coming from them and not me. So today, we're going to talk about a topic that is going to be somewhat hard for us to apply. Uh, and just remember, that's what he said. I'm just a messenger, so don't get mad at me today if, if you leave thinking that some things we talk about today are just really hard to put in life and they're not fair and it shouldn't be that way. Um, these are words of Jesus, and so I'm simply a messenger Today, Last week we looked at the words, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. And so it was important for us to understand uh, the importance that Jesus plays in our role and his claim to be the Son of God, his claim to be God, and what that meant for our lives. And today we're going to be in Matthew chapter number 5. And um, I want to look at, at words found in verses 43 and 44 where Jesus says this. He says, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You've heard it said to love your neighbor and hate your enemies, but I tell you to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, this isn't natural at all. Can we just be honest? Can we all just say there was someone that cut us off on the way to church and we got angry and we didn't want to pray for those people um, that you know, if we prayed for an enemy in our life, it was probably a prayer of wrath, like, God, I just can't get to them, but I need you to do something for me and let them know that that was from me. Um, this isn't natural. I mean, as, as parents, you know that this isn't natural, that when you had kids and they were really young and maybe they started getting picked on in school and they would come home just crying and saying, so-and-so said this or so-and-so did this, then you would begin to, to teach your kids like to stand up for themselves, not to be bullied, that they needed to tell someone in charge if something was happening to them. But if worse came to worse, you know, you've all had that conversation, you know, just right between the eyes, you know, just one good time and he'll leave you alone. And um, my dad never had that conversation. I never had to put it into practice. I didn't, really. But um, I would hope that if my son were ever in a situation where he was getting bullied and I had to like, tell him, son, there comes a day when you've got to be a man and stand up for yourself. That feels like a natural conversation. Would you agree? It, 
it, it agrees, it, it's natural for us when we have opposition, when we have hardship, when people are doing things to us that aren't fair and we're not in agreement, that we want to stand our ground and we want to prove ourselves victorious and we want to defend our position and our stance. And uh, it's just not natural to love enemies. It's not natural to pray for those who persecute you. Now, I know some of you are thinking, I don't really have a lot of enemies. Like, I am a very friendly person and everyone loves me. And I know that's probably true. Uh, most of us don't have a presence in our lives like the Taliban or, uh, you know, some terrorist group that's attacking us and we're having to fight for our lives. Uh, and so, on some level, a lot of us would think when we hear this, like, I don't really have a lot of enemies and so this doesn't really apply to me. Um, but we're going to see today exactly what Jesus meant when he said to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And, and we're going to look back at what he said when he said, you've heard that it was said to love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. And we're going to see the significance of that. Uh, and before we jump into it, though, I want to kind of just point out our approach to scripture, specifically when it comes to the words of Jesus, uh, can never be a buffet style approach. Uh, my grandparents, they love Ryan's. And so when I go to eat with my grandparents, I go up and down the aisle and I say, I want this, this looks good. I don't want that, it doesn't look good. And so I get to kind of pick and choose what I put on my plate. And so many times we want to do this with scripture. It's, it's a natural tendency for us to want to embrace things that we can just say, yeah, I can get behind that, that makes sense, I love that. But when it comes to things that just kind of rub us a little in the wrong way, and it doesn't seem natural and it doesn't make a lot of sense and, and honestly probably doesn't seem fair in a lot of ways, we tend to say, you know, that's, that's good for you, but I'm just going to kind of hang on to the things over here that I really like, that really make me feel good. Um, and so as we approach this scripture today, I just want to kind of pray before we start and just ask God just to give us a heart to hear. Um, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, these are Jesus' instructions to you. They're not like a buffet option. These are like his instructions to me and to you. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, then you may can just think, you know, these people are crazy if they're actually going to do that. Um, but hopefully something that we say today will spark your interest and help you understand why Jesus asks us to do certain things. So let me pray for us and then we'll jump into uh, some meanings behind the scripture. Lord, thank you for your instructions to us. Thank you, Lord, that they're recorded, that we can read them, that we can apply them to our lives. And sometimes, if we're being honest, when we come before you after hearing some words that aren't natural and don't make a lot of sense, it's easy for us to kind of hold some truths at an arm's distance and not fully embrace them and not fully apply them. They're just difficult to put into practice. And I pray today that you would give us a grace and a mercy and a boldness and a courage just to follow you wholeheartedly in everything that we say and do. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. So, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 are considered uh, one of Jesus' most comprehensive sermons, uh, teachings that he has ever given, especially recorded in Scripture. He's, he's on a mountainside, and there's crowds gathered, and he calls his disciples to him, and he begins to teach them. And as the crowds gather, they begin to hear his words. They're amazed at the authority that he teaches with, but in teaching his disciples, he gets to this passage of Scripture, starting in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. And I want to kind of read the context of this, um, and then we're going to kind of go back and, and ask ourselves a couple of questions about it. Starting back in verse 43, Jesus says to his disciples and the crowds that have now gathered around, he says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. We're going to talk about this as a reference back to Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. 
Verse 44, he says, but I tell you, contrary to that, to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that, and this is the most difficult part of the passage for me, and we're going to talk about this as we end our time together, that, some versions say, in order that, you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Almost as if this is like a prerequisite. Like if you do this, then, if, then, then you can be a son of your Father in heaven. He causes, listen to this, his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends his reign on the righteous and unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And that word perfect is more of a, a term of mature. Be mature as your heavenly Father is mature. So this would have certainly piqued the interest of this audience, this Jewish audience who would have grown up knowing and learning the law, the Old Testament law, uh, who would have known that in Leviticus chapter number 19, verse 18, it says, let's go ahead and put that up. It says, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people. Notice that, one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I'm the Lord. Now listen to this. There's a reason that rules are put into place, right? There's a reason that laws are put into place, right? There's, there's a speed limit because at some point people started driving too fast and someone thought it's probably not good for people to drive this fast. So because of this action, we're going to impose some type of regulation to try to bring order to this system so that there can be a sense of safety, so, so this law was for their good, and we can see evidently among their own people, these Israelites would have been arguing, would have been quarreling, would have been fighting and battling, and he's saying in this rule, because I'm sure of some actions that were taking place, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people. Now notice this is important because he says one of your people, meaning your nationality, your Jewish group of people. And so they would have taken this to mean, okay, we've got to get along. You know what this is like. You've got family members that sometimes are your enemies. You've got kids that are your enemies. You've got parents that sometimes are your enemies. So people closest to you can sometimes be the people that hurt you the most. And inside this nation, they had become so quarrelsome, so, so at odds with one another that this law was imposed. And so they would have grown up, these people listening to Jesus teach, hearing and have knowing that among our people, we can't hold grudges. We can't attack one another. We can't seek revenge. If someone does something, then we've got to forgive. We've got to love one another. We've got to get along. But anyone outside of our people was kind of known like it's kind of us against them. We're right and they're wrong. And that rule doesn't really apply outside the borders of who we are. And so we began to see that people were loving people inside the church, so to speak. On the outside of the church, they weren't showing the same love. We see this today. We see this all over our nation today. Inside the church, there's lots of quarrels, there's lots of arguments, and so people try to work things out, and they try their best not to avenge one another, but it's kind of like, if you're outside the church and you're going to cross me, then I'm going to stand up and hold my ground, I'll defend myself, and it's going to get ugly in a hurry. So Jesus says to these people, I know that that's natural, I know that's what you've known your whole life, I know that that's how you live, but, but here's what I'm telling you, is you can't hate your enemies either. In fact, you've got to love your enemies, not just 
people inside the church, not just people inside your faith. You, you love your enemies. And he takes it a step further and says, and pray for those who persecute you. At a time when the church would have been persecuted, Jesus says, you've got to pray for those people. So, so here's, here's what I want to do. I want, I want to answer three questions real quickly in our time together, and then I'm going to challenge us at the end. The first question that we're going to look at is, who is our enemy? Okay, the second question that we're going to look at is, is what does this love look like? You know, what does it look like to love an enemy? And then, and then the third question we're going to look at is, how is this possible? Because it seems so unnatural, and it seems so far from where a lot of us are in life to love our enemies and especially pray for those who persecute us. Okay, so, so let's start with this question, who is our enemy? Okay, Jesus is kind of making clear here that by opposing something they'd known their whole life, that an enemy was someone outside of their realm of faith or their nationality, uh, outside of their church group. So this would have been a group of people on the outside of this Jewish nation, the nation of Israel. Uh, but Jesus in this passage kind of answers the question. Um, in fact, if, if you remember a story in Luke chapter number 10, uh, in verse number 29, uh, this isn't going to be on the screen, but if you'll remember, Jesus tells a parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan, in response to a question that an expert in the law asked him. An expert in the law, someone who was well-trained in the law, asked Jesus, trying to trap him, um, who is my neighbor? Because Jesus had said that you're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, and you're to love your neighbor as yourself. And so this expert says, okay, well, tell me who my neighbor is. And Jesus goes into this dialogue telling this story, this parable about a good Samaritan. He talks about a man who's traveling along the road and robbers uh, rob him and beat him and he's left on the side of the road and a priest comes along and notices that this man is hurt, he's been robbed, he's been left for dead and the priest continues traveling down the road, doesn't help the man. Then a Levite comes, uh, a member of the priestly line of the nation of Israel comes and sees the same man in this bad condition, having been robbed and um, needing help and he keeps traveling right along. But then a Samaritan comes and he sees this man on the side of the road and he takes pity on him. He helps the man. He puts him on his own donkey. He takes him to an inn. He pays for the man to stay in an inn and asks the innkeeper to take care of this man. Tells him he's going to come back in a few days. And if there's any expense that he needs to be made well, then he'll cover those expenses too. But please just, just help this man. And the significance of this story is that when he asked the expert in the law, who of these three was the neighbor, the expert had to say, well, his neighbor was the one who had mercy. But there was a problem with that because this expert in the law would have known that a Samaritan and a Jew were adversaries. Like they were completely opposed. Like Jewish people were not to have anything to do with Samaritan people. But here Jesus has proven that even outside of our borders, outside of those people that we love, we can have neighbors who are our enemies. Okay, so think family, think coworkers. There are people that are in your life, they're in your circle, um, they're people you're supposed to love, but they can be enemies. And then Jesus kind of, in this story, he takes it a step further and says, outside of that, even outside of people who don't help you, okay, let's look at people who oppose you, look, let's look at the people who robbed you, who left you for dead. He now takes it to that level and says, you know, we're supposed to love them and pray for them 
And it just doesn't make sense. So, so let's kind of go through who my neighbor is. Verse, verse 44, Jesus says that we're to pray for those who persecute you. So number one, if you have people in your life who persecute you, okay, Jesus makes clear they would be an enemy to you. I know that we don't live in a highly persecuted church day here in America, though we have brothers and sisters around the world who are undergoing intense persecution right now. We have persecutions of our own for being Christians, for following Christ, for living differently from other people in our life. There are different things that we go through and we face some persecutions. And when we face those persecutions, we identify that those are enemies. It may be coworkers, it may be family members, it may be uh, friends, it may be people that we don't really know, but when we face that persecution, we identify uh, this, is, this is an enemy, okay? Not like a physical combat enemy, we're about to go to war, but a spiritual enemy. This is someone that Jesus says, I'm supposed to love. And then, you know, we can identify those people in our life, but sometimes they don't seem as few. But, but then he takes it a step further and he goes in verse number 45 and he says, uh, he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sits his reign on the righteous and the unrighteous. Okay, so if there's evil and good and there's righteous and unrighteous, the evil and the unrighteous would be enemies of God. Why would they be enemies of God? It's, it would be because they're living their lives opposed to God's ways. Okay, they're evil because they're rejecting the good that's found in God. And therefore, they're opposed to his ways. And Jesus, God, he doesn't show favoritism. He loves, his sun rises, uh, he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous, the good and the evil. And so we identify that in our lives, there are people that sometimes are opposed to our ways or our will or what's best for us or in our best interest. Now, these people don't necessarily claim to be like enemies of God. They wouldn't come out and say, you know, I hate, I hate the church, I hate God, I hate you. But they're simply just, they're opposed to his ways. They don't live their life according to his ways like we do if we claim to be followers of Christ. And so in your life, in my life, there are people that don't have your best interest at mind. And they may not openly persecute you, but they just may not act in a way that builds you up or benefits you or causes you to succeed. They might look out for your own interest and we can see through the scripture that they would be considered an enemy to us. They would be considered an enemy to us. The third thing that we see here in this passage is that um, those who don't love you or are not your brother are enemies. Verses 46 and 47. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? So if there are people outside of our realm of comfort that we greet, that we love, Jesus would consider them our enemies. And he would say to you, how is it beneficial to the kingdom of God or how is it reflecting the love of God through your life if you only love those who are your brother, your sister, if you only greet those who you're close to? And so we see that those who persecute us, those who don't have our best interests in mind, and those who aren't brothers and sisters of ours can be considered enemies. Now, here's the type of life that I think a lot of us live. I call it a ledger life. A ledger is a document, many of you have ledgers in, in your checkbooks that, that record financial transactions. 
And I think a lot of us, we kind of live ledger lives, meaning that maybe mentally, maybe somewhere back on the back burner, we kind of keep a record of transactions that we have with people. Not financial transactions, but it's sometimes difficult for us to forget some words that people said. It's sometimes difficult to forget some decisions that people made that affected us negatively. And it's easy to cling to those who say words that build us up, that strengthen us, that make decisions that benefit us. And so on the one hand, it's almost like we have these, these credit transactions with people in our lives. And the people who make credits into our lives, like we love those people. It's easy to love those people, right? Like they've done things for us that benefit us. They've said words. They've, they've, their actions have proven that they love us. And, and so we kind of have this credit. But then we have these deductions on the opposite hand that, that we kind of keep up when people have done things to us that have opposed us, that haven't been for our best, that haven't built us up, that have kind of torn us down. And we live our lives kind of letting the, the credits rise to the top, and these are the ones that are easy to love, and we let the deductions kind of fall to the, to the bottom, and we say these are the ones that aren't so easy to love. And so this ledger life that we live, this, this record-keeping life that we live, this responsive love life to what has happened to us, it feels natural. It feels, it feels natural. It's easy to love those who do things for us and it's easy not to love those who do things against us. And Jesus is kind of saying to his disciples in this crowd that you've got to live a ledger-less life. Like you've got to stop allowing the transactions that you have with people be the source of your love for them. You've got to stop letting when people oppose you openly or say evil things against you openly to be the source of your lack of love for them. And you've got to stop letting the good things that people say and do for you to be your source of love for them. And you've got to forget the transactions. You've got to learn to love your neighbor and your enemy. And so the common thread for Jesus is, is to love everyone, not just those that we come from. Well, well that's, that's easy in theory. It's easy in theory, and it's easy for us to say I believe that and I know I should do that but to put it into practice is a little more difficult and so so the second question that I want to look at is what does this love look like like how do we put this into practice into practice and how do we set this into action and into motion in our lives when it doesn't seem natural and it doesn't seem right and it doesn't seem fair for us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us and so I'm going to kind of work backwards through this scripture Starting in verse number 47, when Jesus says, And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Do you know sometimes sharing love with an enemy is as simple as greeting them? We don't just greet our brothers, but we greet those who aren't our brothers. I wonder, I just... Are there people in your life right now that you just, you couldn't even greet? Like you couldn't even speak to? You couldn't even say a nice greeting to them? That would be easy to identify as an enemy. And this would be an easy, practical way 
for you to understand how to begin loving your enemy. It's to say, look, I know that what you did affected me negatively, but I just want you to know, you know, I hope you have a great day. Hope your family's doing well. I hope that you're not going through what you have put me through. And sometimes just a simple hello to someone who doesn't expect a hello from you can mean more than a conversation with the people they're closest to. We can love our enemies simply by greeting them. At times the second way that we can love our enemies is by practically meeting physical needs. Practically meeting physical needs. In, verses, in verse 45, Jesus says that he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. What is the sun and what is rain representative of? Well, these are physical needs being met in the lives of people who may deserve it and some who probably definitely don't deserve it. He still sends provision over everyone without favor. And for some of us, loving an enemy could be as simple as meeting a need in the life of someone who would be an enemy. It would be going to someone who isn't at all interested in in meeting our needs and meeting a need for them. For some, it it may be a financial gift out of nowhere that you know that there's a need for someone and, and they have done nothing to deserve anything from you. In fact, they've done everything to deserve nothing from you. And in spite of that, when you meet a physical need, when you see that someone is lacking in an area and you simply meet a need and you create provision in their life. That, that's loving your enemy. See, it's easy to say you love someone, right? My son, Landon, he's going through this stage now where if he gets in trouble and, and I say something to him that he doesn't want to hear, he says, well, I'm not your friend. Okay, and it's easy for us to have that mentality. Well, you don't have my best interest in mind. I'm not your friend. But when you get to a place where you allow Jesus to help you love your enemies, you're at a place where you understand you don't deserve this and you've done nothing to earn it but I just want to be a blessing to you and I want you to know that I'm going to help meet a need in your life whatever that looks like I've noticed that your children need something I've noticed that whatever that looks like and when you meet a need Jesus says that provision is a tangible practical way that we can love an enemy and then lastly the most bold thing that we could do verse 44 Jesus tells us that we're to pray for those who persecute us. And, and listen, listen to the heart of Jesus in, in saying that he wants us to pray for those who persecute us because we could pray many things when it comes to enemies. And a lot of them would not be the heart of Christ. A lot of them would be prayers of vengeance, prayers of evil, if we're being honest. But the heart of Jesus is that we want the best for our enemies and ultimately ultimately we want those outside of the church we want those outside of our sphere our family of faith to come to know Christ that we can understand and, and look and see that when an enemy acts against us it's nothing personal 
They haven't experienced the love of Christ like we have, and so of course they're going to act that way. And when we pray for them, when we honestly get to a place where we can want the best for them, where we can wish well for them, then we're at a place where we're understanding the love of Christ and we're extending love to our enemies. We see specifically two places, just real quickly, in Acts chapter number 7, verse 60. Uh, a man named Stephen, an early leader in the church, is being stoned. Not recreationally. They're throwing rocks at him. They're killing him. Some of you will get that on your ride home. And in the face of his death, in the pain and the agony of having these rocks thrown at him, he prays that God wouldn't hold this sin against these people. And I ask myself, how do I get to that place? How, how can I get to a place where I can pray for those who are trying to kill me? Well, it can start with a greeting. It can start with meeting a physical need. And it can, it can progress to praying for them and wanting the best for them. And Jesus himself illustrates this so well. I love that he owns the words that he passes along to us when he's hanging on a cross and he's about to take his last breath and he's about to give his life for us. He prays and he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't understand who they're killing and why they're killing me and they don't understand the spiritual significance of what's happening in this moment. They don't understand that this moment was necessary and I came to the earth for this moment. They simply think that they're doing what's right in their eyes and what's right in their eyes is opposed to your ways and it makes us enemies. But I pray, Father, that you would forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. And that, that phrase, they don't know what they're doing, should just resound in our hearts that when people act against us outside of God's will and, and his ways, we understand that they don't, they don't know what they're doing. They're doing what's natural to them, but they're far from God, and therefore they don't experience love like we experience love. And so we begin to pray for them. So how's this, how's this possible? How's it possible to understand who our enemies are and love them and pray for them the way Jesus calls us to. I want to back up a little bit earlier in Jesus' teaching in this Sermon on the Mount to chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. When Jesus says, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Do you know that you can not only endure your enemies, but you can actually rejoice in your enemies because you know that when evil comes from enemies against your life, that you're storing up rewards in heaven. And you understand that what happens on this earth isn't the greatest thing that could ever happen to you. And we have this heavenly perspective that what's happening in the natural world isn't the most important thing in our life. And when people act against us and say bad things against us and make decisions that don't have our best interests in mind and even openly persecute us, 
We can rejoice in that because we know that we'll be rewarded one day for that in heaven, though we feel no reward here on this earth. And so part of the heart of learning to love our enemies is starting to have a more eternal mindset when it comes to our interactions with people. Yeah, this may not be the best thing for me here, but there's coming a day where I'm going to reap a benefit, a reward from this negative interaction in my life. And the second thing, chapter 5, verse 3, Jesus starts this teaching by saying these words, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I used to wonder what that phrase, poor in spirit, meant, what Jesus was really referring to. Because when I see someone that has a poor attitude, it's, it's not a good thing. And so Jesus isn't saying here, you're poor in spirit and that you aren't very spiritual. But he's saying those who are poor in spirit understand that these things I'm asking of you, these things I'm telling you to do, they're pretty much impossible. And there's a reason they're pretty much impossible. And that's because I want you to get to the end of yourself and understand that you can't do this on your own. That I sent my spirit to empower you to live this life and to follow through with these teachings and this command. And the only way that you can love your enemies is unnaturally because it will never come naturally for you. And so it's almost this place of filing spiritual bankruptcy and just saying, I'm at the end of myself and I can't do this. And Jesus, I want you to do through me what I can't do for myself. It's declaring a full dependence on Jesus and saying the only way that I can follow through with what you're teaching me right now is if I live my life knowing that on my own strength, I'll never do it. But I have to be fully dependent on you. Every minute, every hour, every day. Anytime I face opposition from enemies, the only way I can love them is with the help of Christ. With the help of Christ. And so the most controversial part of this passage is when Jesus says that we're to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us, that or in other, in order that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. And it kind of leaves you with this this taste in your mouth like, I'm not great at this. What does that mean for me? At least it does for me. It leaves me hearing Jesus telling me to love my enemies and pray for those who persecute me, and I'm not an expert in that by any means. And then he says, in order that you may son, be sons of your Father in heaven, and I say, well, I'm not great at that, so does that mean that I'm not a son of my Father in heaven? Almost as if Jesus is saying, if you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, then... You'll be sons of your Father in heaven. As if loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you is a prerequisite to sonship with God the Father. And I want to help us to see that differently. Because it's not, a, it's not a prerequisite, but it's a proof. It's not required to be a son, but it's being a son helps you do what he's calling you to do. And it proves that you are part of his family. You've probably had conversations with a, with a parent, with a mother or father who says, we don't do things that way. The Crawford name, we don't stand for that. We don't act that way. And the same's true for those who follow Christ. 
We, we don't hate our enemies. I know that's natural and that's what the world says and it feels good to tell someone on the phone how you feel and it feels good to make them feel small so that we can feel good and it feels good to see them suffer for making us suffer but Jesus says it's not how we act. It's not how our family conducts themselves and sometimes we need to be corrected and Sometimes we may need to be punished. But at the end of the day, we understand that this is what Jesus asks of me. And by being in the family, I can do what he's asked me to do through his help. And so I want to end our time together in a fairly practical response to this sermon. I'm going to say a prayer for us. And then I'm going to give us like a minute of just silence and I want you just to, in your mind right now while I'm praying, identify some enemies that you have in this life. It could be a family member, it could be a co-worker, it could be a friend, it could be an acquaintance, it could be someone that you don't really know that well. And when you just think of their name, perhaps it stirs up some negative emotions and you would say at this point in my life, I don't wish them well. I don't want the best for them. I don't want them to be blessed. I don't want them to be provided for. I want them to suffer. And if you can think of someone like that, then while I'm praying, I just want you to ask God to give you strength to take a practical next step in their life. Whether it's greeting them whether it's a conversation to say, I forgive you, whether it's meeting a physical need, whether it's saying, I know you don't deserve it, but I just noticed that you could use fill in the blank. And I felt like I could provide this for you. I don't expect anything in return, but God bless you. And you may still not be at a point where you're like, come over for dinner afterwards and we can celebrate this. That's okay. You can just kind of drop it off and leave for now after you've said your greeting. But the goal is that Jesus helps us get to a place where we can pray for them and wish the best for them and want them to experience the hope that we've found in the same way that we have. Let me pray and you identify. Father, thank you for loving us when we were your enemies. Thank you for coming to this earth and in all of our places extending a hand of love and providing salvation ultimately that we could be made right and have a relationship with God. Thank you for the example that you set and thank you for the instructions that you've given us. It's easy to love those who are our brothers. It's easy to greet those who are close to us. But you call us, Lord, to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. And I pray for everyone in this room right now as we all just identify maybe some people or a person in our life right now that we could greet or we could provide or we could pray for 
Would you just give us a mercy and a grace to extend to them the same love that you've extended to us? And it's a love that isn't dependent on transactions. Help us, Lord, to live ledgerless lives. Forget about all the transactions and simply love. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you just take 30 seconds, just right there in the quietness of the moment, and just would you just say a prayer for an enemy?